Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Focused on Forward. I have the pleasure of sitting down and talking with Kim Minch today. And you'll have the pleasure of listening to her story in just a moment. Now, I'm very excited to talk to Kim because many of the times that we, when we talk to people who have gone through issues, it's the person who has gone through it directly. But Kim has a little bit of a different story today and how she helped her son navigate his addiction to alcohol. And so this is a powerful story for us because it helps us to remember that not everybody who is going through something is the person who goes through it directly. And so how does this affect us as caregivers? How does this affect us as parents, as family, as friends? And so we'll have an opportunity to hear that from Kim today, not only how it affected her, but how it affected her family, how she was able to help her son navigate through this time period in his life and help him lead to a life of sobriety, who, from what I understand, is now celebrating his 11th, almost 12th year in sobriety. So kudos to him. That's an amazing accomplishment. So Kim is also the host of a show called Becoming Me While Raising You, which is also the title of her book and a coaching program that she has as well. So Kim, thank you so much. We're glad to have you here. Thank you for being on Focused on Forward. Tim, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you today. And like you said, it's, it's you know, being, there are many players in, in um, the situations that either our kids go through or our spouses go through. And if you're talking to the person that that's happened to, Many times you don't get the story behind the people deeply affected by the person who's walking that journey. So I'm super excited to to talk with you today. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the reasons I was most excited to talk to you about this is because uh, the whole reason why I started this show is because of the journey that my daughter went through. And this was part of my way of dealing with that journey. And so I'm excited to hear how you navigated through this with your son how it's affected you. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the similarities, but also the things that were different about your journey compared to mine. So when you're ready, please share your journey with us. Yes, sure. So I grew up in the Midwest and I had a very traditional upbringing. My um, dad was the, you know, the uh, provider. My mom stayed home. I have two younger brothers. We went to Catholic school all the way through high school. And, um, you know, I, I guess I'd say I had a very normal middle-class upbringing and I went off to college <clears throat> and as, as a freshman in college, I ended up becoming pregnant and my parents were not real happy with that. And that, you know, it was obviously a huge change in my life. Um, and what happened was shortly before my son was born, my dad said, if you wanted, if you would like to keep that child because he was convinced that I 
should give my baby up for adoption. So if you are um, sure that you're going to um, raise this child on your own, then you need to leave the family home. So right before he was born, I had to navigate and sign up for welfare and figure out how to be a single parent. And obviously, yeah, it obviously, um, you know, it was obviously emotionally challenging to become a mother at the age of 18, but then to be given this ultimatum um, made it extra difficult. But I very much, as much as I thought about giving my child up, I just couldn't bring myself to that place. And so I became the single parent. Well, my son's father also was um, very, very charming initially. And obviously we were both at, at, you know, at 18 and 19 years of age was, was a huge adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended up being an emotionally abusive relationship. And one that I was able to get out of when my son was about three, but it didn't mean we didn't co-parent together for many years. So, so, um, I ended up um, getting married shortly thereafter. My husband and I have four kids together. So I have a total of five kids and um, we navigated, you know, again, this back and forth co-parenting situation with my eldest son for most of his life. So um, when my son was in his early teens, I could tell that things weren't going well. He was having some mental health issues. He was having some anxiety, I would say, looking back, he probably was borderline depressed. And in part, hindsight being all that it is, I think that he didn't feel 100% accepted for who he was in either his father's home or in our home, quite frankly, I thought we had a great relationship, he really did, we had a good rapport. Um, But again, he's going between two different places and I just don't know that he ever felt right. So um, when he was in high school, there were a couple of incidents when I either found small alcohol bottles or, you know, just he could, I could have had a hard time getting him out of bed in the morning. There were definitely some signs during high school that I, at times, even my husband got to a place where he's like, Kim, somebody's taking alcohol from the cupboard because there's, there's stuff that's missing. And I would confront my son because, you know, he was the step parent. And so I would go and confront my son and my son would look Mm -hmm. me in the eye and say, I didn't take anything. Um, so this dynamic played out. And when he was 18 years old, my husband finally said, there's something going on. You need to leave the house. So he went and lived with his dad and that turned out to be, you know, just the first of many steps of his immersion into active addiction with alcohol. So as I mentioned before, we started recording, um, we moved to Texas in 2007 for my husband's job. And my son was 18 at the time. He had graduated high school. He had a girlfriend and a job and he was headed towards um, uh, community college. And so he, there was no reason for him to, to come with us. He had, you know, his life there. Okay. So the first year that we were in Texas, it was, you know, it's this long distance relationship and I'd call it to check in with him once or twice a week. And <clears throat> it might take him a couple of days to get back to me. And I just wrote it off as, 
oh, he's busy with his girlfriend and working and all the things. Well, in May of 2008, I received a phone call on a Tuesday evening that I call my parenting wake-up call. And that was my son calling to say he'd lost the last three days of his life to an alcohol blackout. It wasn't the first time and he needed help. And that was really the turning point of no longer could I deny there was a challenge or what might be going on, even though my mom gut instinct the whole time was like, there's something not right here. There's something not right, you know, but it was that phone call that confronted me with the information. So um, the two of us started on a journey together of trying to figure out how I could best support and encourage him without enabling him. And that was a very, very much of, I mean, I think parenting in general is a tightrope walk, but through a child's addiction is an incredibly, um, sometimes really blurry line as you know, how we're helping them and how we're maybe enabling the situation to continue. Um, so, so it was a series of events that took place. I flew from Texas on like at the drop of a hat a couple of times because he needed to get into medical detox. I mean, it just, it was kind of a crazy time. And my four other kids, you know, trying to remain a present parent to the, to my other kids, (laughs) you know, who were like preschool to high school made it challenging as well. Um, it, it ended up after several months of, of major ups and downs that I was able to get him into long-term um, inpatient care. And I want to say that that was the end of it. I delivered him along with a large check into a, you know, into an inpatient and everything went beautifully. And that's what I thought was going to happen. And that really isn't what happened. He did go through treatment. He did learn a lot. He went into sober living and um, not shortly thereafter, he, he relapsed. And what I didn't understand as a parent is that relapse is a part of recovery. And the beautiful thing is that he had learned enough in treatment at his age of 20 to be able to, even when he did, you know, fall into a binge to be able to recover and want to do better. So a handful of times he relapsed, the worst of which is when his dad, who died of um, alcohol complications, his, his father died at 42. So the worst of that um, relapse came on the heels of his dad dying because he didn't have any idea how bad his dad was. And he had spent a lot of time not wanting to talk with his dad because he was trying to remain sober and his dad's voice would trigger him deeply. So mm-hmm. he didn't really have the closure that he wanted. So that is the, that is the, that is the backbone of the challenge of the story. Um, and again, what's really opened my eyes as a human being in looking back at the way my parents had parented, the way that I was parenting and how I really wanted to immerse myself in doing differently and having healthier relationships with my kids moving forward because I knew that Nick was just the oldest of five and I was gonna have all these other kids behind him and I had to do better. Sure, absolutely. 
I, I think it's interesting that you, you noted that uh, I think it's the expectation really for, for many of us when we have someone who's gone through active addiction and they're stepping into rehab and they're, they're going to try and better themselves is that we expect that just, I think just like you had said, okay, I've, I've delivered him here. Now is going to be better. Now is going to, when he comes out, everything like that's going to be the, the wipe the slate clean and you know everything's fine, you know, but it, it is a disease and it, it it's an addiction and it's something that the body craves and wants. And, and yeah. And I, I think that, you know, I, I had talked about this with another guest and I, and I think it's one of the things that is one of the biggest misconceptions that one of the biggest stigmas around addiction is that people have that, that conception right there is that when this happens, that that's what, that's what it is and everything's going to be fine. And so when there is that backslide, when there is, you know, the, the stumble and they, they have the drink or whatever their addiction is that got them into to rehab and go for recovery is that people feel like that's a failure mm-hmm. and it, that it's not part of the disease. You know, because when, and, and I use this analogy in talking with somebody else that when it's cancer and somebody has a second bout of cancer, nobody goes, Oh, well, you failed with the cancer, you know, right? right, it's, right. you know, but this is, oh. this is an actual disease and, and having that, that is part of the, the disease leading to the, to the health is that unfortunately for many, there is a backslide. There is going to be, you know, a, a relapse into, you know, or, or away from sobriety rather. So yeah. Yeah. And I, I really, um, what I didn't do as a parent and what I want to, if, if parents are listening and they're in this situation now, what I would say is I looked back at the way I had been parenting, but I didn't get lost in where I went wrong and always me. And, you know, like, why is this happening? And my kids, you know, going to be like, going to go nowhere and, and there really isn't, it wasn't productive. I looked back at where I had contributed because the truth is I had contributed. I had contributed to where he was at. However, I didn't want to stay there. I wanted to help him again, support and encourage him without enabling him. And that's a very fine line to walk. And you don't always know from day to day when you're, when you're navigating that situation. Um, but it also his drinking, I very quickly became to under, came to understand that while he was introduced as to alcohol in a recreational social way, mm-hmm. it quickly became his way of dealing with his anxiety, his depression, his sure. mental health issues. He, he, um, is challenged by OCD. And so, um, that's why he was drinking. He was drinking to try and fall asleep at night. Like he he was, you know, it wasn't a major social, you know, recreational thing. And I think for a lot of people, that's, that's in part what it is for him. It was a coping mechanism. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, you know, I've, I've heard a couple others that have had similar instances where it was, they were just trying to, to, numb their mind to be able to just relax and numb themselves enough to be able to relax and, and kind of put away the, the stresses and worries that were, that were plaguing them. Uh, so yeah, co- definitely coping mechanism. So, okay. So where did you, when did you get to a point with your son and yourself where you began to become focused on forward? How did you move forward past the point of, okay, we've got him to rehab. He's working through and working towards recovery. How did you move forward? 
Well, as I mentioned, I had him at the age of 18 and I was a freshman in college. So obviously I left college and at that time. And when we went to family, uh, the family program that his, the treatment center had for him, I learned, started learning, learning about addiction. And, and I decided um, I was meant to go back to college and become a licensed chemical dependency counselor and work with teenagers. I was just convinced that this was my calling and the reason I was having the experience. And I did go back to school. I did graduate. I did start, um, I did pass the state exam and started on the 4,000 hours of internship that was needed for this. And about a thousand hours into it, I decided working with teenagers who don't think they have a problem is not, is not where I want to be. I really want to support parents, but I'd like to support parents before they get into a crisis situation. The reality of what I'm doing and what I have been doing for years is that more often than not, parents are in crisis before they will look for help. But my goal, just like me, because I didn't, you know, I myself am that same parent that didn't really look, you know, for the help or didn't really look for the answer, didn't dig too deep until it was a crisis is, you know, to be proactive with relationships you're having with your kids. We are not going to be able to prevent all types of, you know, challenges or protect them from some of the things they're going to go through that we really, really don't want them to. However, you can educate yourself on the parent-teen relationship, on the parent-young adult relationship. And so, I um, shifted out of chemical dependency counseling and into parent coaching and have loved it since 2016 when I became certified. And I concentrate on working with parents of kids between the ages of 10 and about 25 for the simple reason that not only do I think there's not enough um, support and encouragement for that population of parents, quite frankly, because they white knuckle their way through it. But my own kids at this point are 16, 19, 24, 28, and 34 years old. And as you mentioned, Nick, at this point is um, almost 12 years sober. In May, he'll be 12 years sober. So um, I've grown a great deal and learned a great deal and want to share that wisdom and that encouragement with parents, specifically parents of adolescents. Okay. So one of the statements you made just kind of perked my ears up a little bit, and I'm kind of curious if it's something you can expound on for just a moment. You talked about parents being in crisis before they realize it, before that they, they realize even their child is headed towards crisis. So what are some of the identifiers as a parent that we should be looking for in those situations? Well, I think we can talk about typical red flags, right? The last couple of years make it a little bit muddier for us to be able to identify these things because we've all been through a lot over the last couple of years. However, I think when a child is isolating a lot excessively, when they don't want to um, share any time with their family, I mean, naturally during the teen years, our kids are going to pull a little bit away and they're going to push, you know, they're going to look towards their peers, but if they have no relationship with the family whatsoever and no desire to, you know, be a part of that, 
if you're seeing, I know grades can be a big, you know, indicator. Um, but I think with the way school has been the last couple of years, that might be a tough thing to, you know, to track oh, as yeah. much as is there, are they, are they cutting out all things they used to once love? Are they um, changing friend groups? Do, do you have a difficult time getting them up every morning? And by the time kids are in high school, they most definitely should be getting themselves up and moving in the morning. There's no, there's no reason for moms to be in there every day and having to, you know, parents to be in there and having this kids should be able to get up and get themselves moving. And I think I really, I, I think that a lot of it has to do with parents slowing down and asking themselves in their gut, what's, is there something going on here with this kid or not? And starting to trust their gut because we tend to want to look outside for all of these answers to our problems and challenges because we don't trust ourselves because we become disconnected with our own sense of well-being. And we're looking at all of our culture and telling us, you know, all the things our kids should be doing and the way we should look. And the reality is sometimes we just have to get very quiet and ask ourselves, like, what's going on here? And is there something that I need to be worried about or monitoring? That's the big thing. No, that's actually really very interesting because you're right. I think over the last couple of years, the, the, those lines are definitely muddied, right? Because we've all been in a bit of a recluse type environment. We've all had to pull back from many of the things that we would normally do because of the, the pandemic. But I think under what we'll call, and I know our listeners can't see this, but I'm using the finger quotes, normal situations and circumstances, uh, all those things would be very much applicable and, and how we would look at uh, you know, our families, our, our children. And I think, you know, <laughs> another thing that you said, it kind of caught me as well. You know, you talked about white knuckling it as a parent. And I think that that's very apropos, no matter whether we're in a pandemic or not, we're, we're, you know, there's a lot of people who have opinions and thoughts and ideas. And I think that there's an, a million self-help books out there on how to parent and what to do and what not to do, but you have to do what's right for your family and what's right for for your situation, because your situation most likely is not the same as somebody else's situation. Your environment is not the same as somebody else's environment. And so there's going to be a need to, to identify the, the necessary changes there. So I think it's really good that you identify that there, there are things that we need to pay attention to, but we also have to make sure that we're, we're custom fitting those, I think, into our, our own family's needs. Yeah. So with your particular situation and now that you you're so you're here you are as this uh therapy you you got this counseling uh, degree and you're doing this work as a, as a counselor with families and i think that's amazing uh so thank you for doing that i i, I think we need more of that type of thing where we have these resources where we can lean lean on how did you apply what you had learned though into your own family setting and what you were dealing with that's a good question <clears throat> and i think it's an ongoing practice I am kind of a, I don't want to say a self-help junkie, but it is the only type of book that I read. And I really, I, I have integrated into my own life, certain aspects of self-care that I've learned over the years have been really beneficial to me. For example, 
I get up in the morning and the very first thing I do is a 10 minute meditation. Um, I do, I set an intention for my day and then meditate for 10 minutes. I also walk 15,000 steps a day, no matter what the weather is in Texas. And it can, it can range from, believe it or not, you know, zero or below zero to 114 degrees, but I am outside every day. So I think also my youngest is my only daughter. And I should say, so I said my kids were 16 to 34 and parenting a daughter at the end after four sons is like pair. It's really keeping me on my toes. And it's because it's like parenting for the first time, even though all of my four sons have very different personalities and, and whatnot, this parenting, this, this daughter at the end is really um, very, you know, it's very different. And trying to keep a perspective on, again, what our culture is telling us and what's important and how she values herself all plays into wanting to be a present parent, which is why one of the messages that I have that's so important is for parents to continuously be taking time and investing in themselves because we have to be emotionally attuned to our kids. They will not come to us with their stresses, with their problems, if they sense either, either through our behavior or even energetically that, that we're not there. We're not, we're tuned out. We've got too much going on. We can't, we don't have the bandwidth to help them. And these years are so, there's so much change that goes on for our kids and just to be available to them means that we have to pour into ourselves. Agreed. Yeah. If we're not, if we're not there for our children in the small things, they're not going to come to us with the big things. Exactly. That is, that is a, a certainty. Okay. And <laughs> again, a lot of what you're saying hits home. My, my daughter, uh, Kendall is, is my youngest and it was a complete flip of the switch from raising two boys before her, you know, who's, who are completely different personalities as well. And, you know, I got so used to being, you know, boy, dad, when it time, came time to be girl, dad, there was a lot of things to relearn. That was, I'm still learning a lot of those things. That's still, it's still a journey. She's 15 and I'm still trying to figure that out. But yeah, that's, that's just, that has, you know, very little to do with the topic at, at hand, but it just amused me that when you said that, that, you know, you're like, oh, it's completely different. I'm like, oh, you ain't lying. Uh, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> uh, yeah. For, you know, again, nothing to do with the topic, but like, you know, I could t- say to my boys, I'm like, Hey, you know, that wasn't very smart to do. And, or you could say, you know, well, don't do that. That's kind of dumb. And my boys would know exactly what I meant. And they knew that I wasn't talk telling them that they were dumb. I said that one time to my daughter and she cried for an hour because daddy told her she was dumb. Oh, and I'm like, well, back to the drawing board on that one. And dad's taking notes on what to change. So yeah, just a little side point there. Um, (laughs) Anyway, you're welcome to my squirrel brain. All right. So how though, with all of this, did you help your, your son going through his, his issues to become focused on forward? Well, a couple of things. First and foremost, I was there and available to listen. Um, And a lot of times I couldn't do much more than that. He, during the course of his active addiction, he ended up being arrested a couple of times. And 
uh, that was probably the, the hardest moment as a parent is to not bail your kid out of jail. I don't know. I, I, I got to think that was ranking at one of the top couple of things that were most difficult for me. But the reality is <clears throat> we didn't have, we didn't financially have the ability. And so I'm, I'm glad for that because I think parents that have the financial ability to bail their kids out. I, I, I will tell you that my son would say to this day that spending time in jail was one of the ways that he knew that he wanted to be somebody different. Um, and he keeps that very close to his heart and, and you know, remembers that. So um, not bailing out, um, being there to listen, um, encouraging him even when at times he didn't believe in himself. I think those are all ways that, and, and, and let's, let's make no mistake, there has to be a desire on the person's part who is addicted to be, I mean, I couldn't have, I couldn't work harder than he was working. Absolutely. And every day, every day he makes, you know, sometimes hour to hour, moment to moment, he makes the choice to continue to stay sober and he advocates for himself. And he, even at 34, he's, he's married at this point. And, um, he, just a couple of weeks ago decided, you know, it's time for me to go back into, into counseling. Like I need, I need some extra help, you know, the Beautiful. COVID and stuff was just kind of, so when your kids can get to a place where they advocate for themselves and they get themselves the help that, that they need without you even having to tell them, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing. That, that means that I have demonstrated, I have modeled, and, and that's not to pat myself on the back in any way. It's just, if you're asking me how, when you, when your kid is in this situation and what did I do? I listened, I encouraged, I believed in him. I didn't bail him out of jail. These are the things that, that I did to help him without knowing for certain, because right, any day could, you know, the other thing I started doing, <clears throat> and some parents may do this as well, but I, I, the last thing I would say to him on the phone is I love you, Nick. And I've taken that with my other, my, all my other kids too, who have, you know, gone to college and live in other parts of the country and whatnot. But I, I want, I no, you never know what, what, what's going to happen between phone calls. Right. I mean, for, for me, I started this because I thought he might go off the rails again. And I just don't know, you know, and I want the last thing for him to hear me say is I love you. And I've just carried that on with all of my kids because it's so important. I, I just, I just want to leave them with that. Perfect. Yeah. I think it's good that you showed an example of being a, a coach, not being the quarterback. He's got to be the quarterback of his own team. You can help coach him. You can help point him in the direction. But at a certain point, you you have to want it as the individual. You have to want to get better. You have to want to be able to steer steer the bus, so to speak, uh, in, in this. So I think that's awesome that you were there to help and you were there to to be a mentor and help him to do you know all these things. So I, I think that's awesome. So good. All right. So let's talk a little bit about where you're at now with this. You've talked about the fact that he's 34, he's married, he's, he's off doing his own thing. And, and how do you help him now, even from a distance and, and, you know, 
Yeah. Um, so we don't live near each other and we haven't seen each other. Well, no, I guess we saw each other about a year ago, but we're, we're fairly close. He's in the state of Texas as well. But um, with COVID and things, he's just being uber careful. I mentioned that he, he had some issues with OCD and I think that contributes to kind of where his head is at. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, it's funny that you asked me this question, but pro probably sometime in January, I had said to him, you know, I haven't seen you in a while because we talk about every other weekend. We that this is we just regularly talk. We send snaps back and forth. I've got other kids that are that don't live nearby, so we we have a family Snapchat. Um, but I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to jump on a Zoom call. So since that time, we have been on a Zoom call every Sunday. It's you know ten or fifteen minutes and just a check in. But I think now especially. I, th I think there's a lot of parents that are struggling with in parenting their young adult children. That's kind of been the trend that I've seen that I'm seeing over the last say year or so. And I think in part it's because we're not seeing people face to face as much. And so thank goodness for the magic of what zoom is, even if it's mm -hmm. just with your children who are out of state or, you know, whatever the, whatever the situation is, but that ongoing connection, I, my life is very busy. His life is very busy, but making it a priority with our adult children to just take five, 10, 15 minutes to have that, um, you know, Hey, how you doing? What's What's exciting in your week this week kind of thing. Um, and we both think that's important. So it's not, so it's, so it's, it's a give and take relationship at this point. And we both feel very important that we're touchstones, you know, for each other. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's great that you're finding ways to keep the connection there. And especially these last couple of years, I think that's that difficulty level has increased for sure. Mm -hmm. All right. So Kim, I have two questions for you that I ask of every single guest. It's a staple okay. of the show. Okay. So first question, looking back over the entirety of your journey, what is the single greatest lesson that you have learned? that no matter how difficult and dark the circumstances you're in, everything is going to work out. And that doesn't mean it will work out the way you think it will, but it will work out to whatever the highest good is in the situation. All right. Very good. Second question, pretty similar to the first. Looking back over the entirety of your journey, what was the single greatest piece of advice that you were given? Mm. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, it ha would have to come from my mom, who is the most non-judgmental cheerleading. She's always been my greatest cheerleader, and she was very instrumental in my walk with my son, just supporting me through that. Um, single piece of advice, probably what I said in the first, you know, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And, and that okay doesn't mean it's all going to work out the way you want to see it work out. It means that it's in our greatest challenges that we learn who we truly are. And those are opportunities for us to decide who we're going to be and how we're going to show up in the world. Not, not when everything's going well, 
But when things are really challenging for us, it's then that we get to decide how we're going to show up in those circumstances and how we can inspire other people to do the same. Excellent. Okay. Beautiful. Well, Kim, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking with you and I hope that the audience has enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed listening to your story. But if they want to find out more about you and what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? They can go to my website, which is reallifeparentguide.com. Reallifeparentguide.com. You can find on there is my book, as you mentioned, Becoming Me While Raising You, A Mother's Journey to Herself. That's the name of the book. And um, also you can see, um, you can see several episodes of the show on there and you can learn about my coaching program and um, yeah, all, all things that, that I'm very excited and passionate to support parents in. All right. So reallifeparentguide.com. Yes, that's it. All right. Perfect. We'll make sure to note that in the show notes down below. And encourage everyone to go not only check out uh, your show there, but also to check out your book and your coaching program. I'm sure that many of what you, things that you have identified here are things that can help many of us as we're trying to navigate these uncertain waters that we're all living through in 2022 have, after the last couple of years of, of COVID and, and pandemic and all the fun that that's been. So, yeah. uh, so, so, so <laughs> yes, yeah, guys, I say that not, not seriously, but yes. So yeah, Tim, I, it's I know great. what you mean. Um, I have. I have enjoyed this very much. All right, guys, this has been Kim Minch. Please go give her a listen and go give uh, her, her website some love over reallifeparentguide.com and find out more about her book and what she's doing over there and ways that she may be able to help you and your family navigate crisis. So this has been Focused on Forward. Thanks for listening. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter, at podcast FOF, through our Facebook page named Focused On Forward, or through email focusedonforward at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then, be safe, be kind, and be loving to one another as you stay focused on forward.